Hello, and welcome to the Vulnerability Junkies podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jamie. On this podcast, we talk about the scary, vulnerable parts of our personal and professional growth, our identities as second-generation Asian Canadians, and talking about our feelings. What feelings does food give you? Do you find warmth in a bowl of noodles? Solace in a cup of ice cream? What about stress? Or shame? Or isolation? Today's episode has been 15 years in the making. They say most journeys only make sense looking backwards. So here's a retrospective on my evolving relationship with food. Let's get into it. Hello, hello. Hello. Back again. Back at it again. How are you feeling today, Kevin? Feeling okay. Clocking in today at physically like a six. Emotionally also like a six. Yeah, what about you? Um, I think physically I'm at like a four. I'm just sleepy. Emotionally at like a seven and a half. So mm. feeling pretty good. Just need to need some more sleep. Nice. Some some solid end of the week end vibes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, the idea for today's episode came from two different things. The first was that every month or so, I try to write a newsletter that sets some specific goals. And one of the goals I had for January was to write a draft of, so write a draft of a post exploring a very long struggle I've had with kind of attitudes towards food. So that's the first thing. And the second thing was a friend of mine telling me that uh, when he heard me talk about some of the of the things I've been working through as part of last week's pod uh, or two weeks ago, then he said that he had a much stronger emotional reaction to that than he did in me writing the same thing down. So that in combination led me to believe, you know what, maybe it's better to just talk this through rather than trying to to create some like literary piece on my own. Uh, and since I've always found talking to you really helpful for just exploring my own emotional landscape, I figured this would be a good opportunity to use the podcast as a means to do that. Seems legit. I'm excited to do have one of these conversations recorded for once since we do this on a semi-regular basis for a whole plethora of topics, but it's cool to have it on pod for once. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so I guess I can just... Uh, provide the context and we can kind of boot into it. Let's do it. So I think that a lot of people, when it comes to food, they just don't think about it that much. Or if they think about it, it's usually in the context of, um, oh man, like I'm really excited to go try these new foods. But up until fairly recently, and even sometimes more recently, food has actually frequently been a source of stress in my life. And uh, this started when I was really young, being a really picky, picky eater. So most people that know me in adulthood mostly know me as someone that's vegetarian, although that has also changed recently, which I'll get into. But when I was really young, um, I think that that was just a convenient social mechanism to avoid talking about how picky I actually was. So I mean, to, to give you some kind of sense of where I was actually at, I think up until the end of high school, it was fairly common for me to come into uh, come into high school every day with packed lunch 
my packed lunch would always feature Cheerios as like one of the main things I was eating. So it would usually be Cheerios. Um, sometimes I have like a bag of almonds and then usually some kind of fruit juice. So really by all means, not a pinnacle of nutrition or a variety. And this was a thing that I was kind of known for, which was a really weird bit of identity that I did not particularly like. But I think that the the more problematic thing beyond that like weird Cheerio boy identity was that it made me avoid a lot of social situations. In particular, if I was ever over at a friend's place when it was approaching dinner time, I would always, always, always try to find some excuse to leave because I was really worried about giving a weird impression to my friend's parents or for them seeing me in this in this light of feeling I guess really vulnerable and and uncomfortable uh, in that social dynamic. So this shaped my decisions more than I certainly would have liked. For instance, another thing I explicitly avoided was any kind of overnight camp because that would also put me in a situation where I completely could not control like what I was eating or I would have to ask for really, really specific provisions. And honestly, even describing the kind of provision that I was asking for would have been pretty embarrassing. Because it went way past being vegetarian. Like, I think at the time, at least until a good chunk of high school, I basically, like, didn't eat, like, green vegetables. I didn't eat any meat. Uh, my uh, People usually kind of joke that my, a lot of my diet consisted of basically the colors beige and brown, which was not inaccurate. Uh, so this is a thing that I, I held as a really uncomfortable part of my identity for a really, really long time. And it's only really been in the last really like two-ish years that it's gotten to a place where I think it's just not a thing people would associate with me anymore if they met me more recently. And then for a lot of my adult life, the identity people would have thought would have attached to me as just vegetarian, uh, which was a lot more comfortable to hold when it became eventually more literally true rather than it just being, um, rather than it being a cover for the fact that I was picky. So this is always a thing that I've I've had a hard time fully exploring because if people met me later on, they would kind of see a version of me where it already wasn't that big of a problem. Um, and I just, it's very rare for me to meet someone that was the same extent of picky as I was to be able to kind of talk through the emotional complexity of this and to talk about, I mean, really to talk about finding ways of working through the shame in a way that it would allow me to, to really move past it. So I have, I have a lot of like really specific memories over the last, like, I guess, 20 years that were in some ways kind of inflection points in this or were, uh, sometimes they were inflection points. Sometimes they were just really strong negative memories that I internalized in a way that took me a long time to let go of. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the thing that I want to explore today. So I really just want to like invite questions to help me explore it. Yeah, for sure. Sounds like. I definitely feel the the gravity of it and how much it means to you. And we'll get into what that actually is. But I'm just right now appreciating. It feels like the mental imagery I have is we're standing in front of this massive, like, gravity dark energy ball. And we're, like, about to go explore the inside of it. But we're not in it yet, so I don't know what's inside. But it's just massive. This is what's coming up, right? It's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two things come up for me questions wise off the bat, and we can start with the the one's more tactical and one's more emotional. Yeah. One is 
for, I'm just curious where the, do you have any ideas where the pickiness came from? Because it sounds like when you were in the state, like there were literally just a very small number of foods that you found interesting or appetizing. And I'm curious to learn about whether or not that was just always the case, or is that something that you learned or embody? Like, where did that pickiness come from to begin with? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I think it was that I became really embarrassed about the idea of trying something and then not liking it and having other people see that I was picky. And this was just a really, really crappy feedback loop because it, it meant that if I was going to try something, in order for it to feel emotionally okay for me at the time, I would have to be really confident that I was going to like it, which uh, because I was afraid of the situation. I don't know why exactly. I was afraid of the situation where, for instance, like I would order something and then I would really not like it. Like I had really intense, strong feelings about certain foods. And then I would be in this situation sitting in a restaurant where I had like two bites of this thing in front of me. Uh, and then other people just like checking in on me in a way that I would actually feel very awkward. Um, so it just felt like a weirdly risky thing to do to explore new foods. And at the time, I was just being really avoidant. I, I was just avoiding stepping into discomfort and then repeatedly doing that for a really, really long span of time until it got to the point where I was at like the, the age of like emotional development where I started to understand that this was weird that made it even scarier to, ex to explore it. Like being, being a picky like eight-year-old is like kind of normal. Being this level of picky as like a 17-year-old is not. And it, once I get to the point where I was aware of it, it became this really frustrating trap where I didn't know how to get out. I'm hearing that there, it's like a two-layer negative feedback loop where the first one was you being picky kind of folded in on itself where you wanted to avoid um, a negative reaction or situation with people, with people noticing that you were really picky, which discouraged you from trying new foods in general, which reinforced the pickiness, yeah. which kept you in a picky state. And then the second layer came on later on as you became aware of the huge gap in terms of at 17, most people are they eat a lot more foods and generally are a lot more willing to maybe try things. And you were really much still stuck in that eight-year-old Jamie state, which is another layer of, of feedback of, oh, I really, now I extra don't want people to know about this. Yeah, well, yeah. Listening to that, like, I definitely started to have some of the same, like, well, um, like, ch childlike fear come up. Mm. Um, I say, like, childlike fear in that it's 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 like almost like a shyness it's not like a i'm natural danger feeling mm. it just yeah i felt like very vulnerable just even listening to that um yeah i mean the, this stuff has had really deep nerves for me for a really long time which is why at least over the last couple of years i've been really motivated to work on it mm -hmm. but it's also why it's been like hard to work on because it has these really deep roots that reach all the way back into into different parts of childhood um, yeah i can imagine it's, i mean i think from I don't know, doing this kind of work in and out of therapy and just you kind of intuit slash realize that a lot of the trauma essentially that dates back to when you were in those like early formative years. I, my therapist, I think, said something like, 
when people are between ages like four and 10 or whatever, like that is some really like psychologically formative time in your development. And I think a lot of the childhood trauma or whatever like starts at that point. So it sounds like this is like a very deeply nestled thing within your psyche heart. And I get that that's sensitive. And it sounds like to your point that it's not fully removed yet even. So it's like the wound's not even, it's still there. Yeah. I mean, there are bits of it that are there. Um, I just now have the massive advantage of having the adult version of me that can kind of like take care of that part of me as well and be like, hey, like, I know this is hard, but it's also important. So you have to do this. That's pretty beautiful. Yeah. Like adult Jamie helping out eight-year-old Jamie. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Very, very grateful to have embodied a 30-year-old or 31-year-old now, I guess. One thread I want to pull on is when we were talking about this before, you mentioned when we talked about the, the negative feedback loop, there was this sense of negativity that you wanted to avoid. What, what is that negativity? Like I'm hearing, I heard before that like there was a, a specific kind or a flavor of social interaction that you're like, I, you mentioned that there was a risk. And I'm curious what you were afraid of risking in that moment. Oh, man. Oh, um, I think it's the two, the two words that come up for me is inconvenience and judgment. So, okay. So for on the inconvenience front, let's say that I, I d- did just like very directly assert what I was asking, what I wanted, then oftentimes that would mean preparing something different for me than it was for everyone else. So, or in the context of eating it with friends, it would mean, uh, not being able to go to the place that everyone wanted. So like the. The canonical example I always think of is like some friends getting really hyped up about going to KBBQ and then having to be like, ah, oh, man, there's like kind of nothing there for me. This was true up until I stopped being vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So that's like on the inconvenience front uh, where I can kind of like I can directly see the kind of inconvenience that's happening. But then the, the thing that's way more under the radar is this fear of judgment where, uh, oh, man, like, I'm not even sure exactly what variety of judgment I was afraid of. I think some of it is like, judgment around someone being demanding and asking for accommodation. Some of it was judgment around. Yeah, I mean, another facet of this is the judgment around this like cultural identity thing as well. And that a lot of these contexts was, I would be like the most obviously white presenting person, the most obviously white presenting person in a situation. And like, I already have like this weird tenuous grasp to Asian heritage. So the part of the thing that always is playing in my head is like, especially in context with, with, um, if I'm like, I'm like interacting with friends, Asian parents, then being like, oh, like, you know, like this white guy is so picky, which just like, is like a really complicated thing to process both because one, I don't want to be representing like a race of people in this way. And two, I don't even have that as my strongest association culturally. So there's just like a lot of processing that happens in my head whenever this happens. And these situations related to food just came up all the time. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that, the, okay, the, I think that part of the judgment is also around maturity. That like, I'm afraid that people would view this as a lens of like, this person is not mature, this person's still a child. Um, and I think it's, it's usually true that the things that we fear being judged for are things that some part of us believes in ourselves, And I think that was true for me here where I did kind of believe that some part of me was stuck as a child. So I think those are the, the three lenses I think about the, 
that kind of discomfort coming coming from in judgment. Yeah, I'm hearing that one is just being annoying to other people that you, you know, they really like or care about. You're just being that guy who always has these demands that, you know, constrain the options that other people might otherwise want to explore. That's inconvenience and very annoying. You don't want to be that for your friends. The other thing that I'm hearing is also this, I like, like a few words come up for me in summarizing what you were just describing there. And they're like this idea of being othered and like excluded from the group or like the opposite of being accepted into the group and alienated is another word that comes for me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I, I can think of specific memories from both sides of that equation. Um, like, I think that one clear way in which the cultural identity facet intersects with the, the pickiness is if you, you know, if anyone that has gone on, gone to a bunch of events with Asian friends, you'll see people always get really stoked up about the idea of eating family styles. They can try all this different food and they can reflect this part of the cultural heritage. And for a long time, from really early accommodations of pickiness and then later just vegetarianism, it would be like everyone else would be partaking in this communal food experience and then I would be ordering my own thing on the side. Mm. Which again, like, it stoked both of these things at the same time. It was both this feeling of disconnect from cultural heritage and this feeling of exclusion, of this feeling of not being included in this, in this group thing. And like, just to, to like be really clear about this, like, I'm not mad at anyone for this. Like, the, everyone was just working in the constraints that they were given. But I do like really clearly remember... Uh, this one time where we were at a Chinese restaurant, there was like, I don't know, seven or eight of us and people were getting stoked up about eating family style. And I'm like, I'm just gonna get my own thing. I was kind of used to it at this point. And then one of my friends just said, said like, nah, like, like I'll, like I'll share with you. And then specifically asked the staff, like which things are vegetarian. And the th I think the thing that really made this important for me is it wasn't just that they were asking for me, it's that they were asking and then ordered things for themselves as well that we could share. And this, I mean, this was like, this was like eight years ago and I still remember this. So that, that's like one really clear memory on that side. And then I, I have the, the inverse memory from, um, from like Chinese New Year events in the past of going through dumpling making where like there was one, one event where a friend was organizing and then, and then like just asked me to handle the vegetarian dumplings applies, which like, again, totally understand. Like the, I, you know, was the one the most equipped to deal with that. But I also just remember the experience of like going to this event, looking at everyone communally wrapping the, uh, like the non-vegetarian ones, the presumably pork ones. And then I was just there on the side, like wrapping my own. And eventually some people did like kind of join in and help me out but it, something about it just like it felt like charity not like community mm. um and yeah and that that really sucked that that was another experience that was along this like dual line of of exclusion and disconnect from cultural heritage yeah i think the more that you unpack it it definitely sounds like like social rejection just like i'm hearing that the fear is that people will when they see you for your pickiness or both on both levels both from uh like judging you and thinking like wow this guy's like immature like maybe we shouldn't be friends with him anymore and then also just tactically 
you're literally saying you guys all eat this stuff. I don't eat this stuff. Therefore, I'm going to be over here. Like there's also that tactical yeah. separation yeah. that is literally like there's a group and then there's me on the side. And then the layer on top of that is the the cultural heritage stuff, yeah. which that definitely hits as well. Just as like, as you were saying, I think like it's a big part of Asian culture where food is a thing that brings people together. That's why it's it's held in such high regard. I think in the culture and it's just, I'm feeling a lot of compassion for you because you're describing that food for you is the opposite of that, where instead of it's a, a thing that brings people to get to a thing that alienates you from other people. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, man, this is, yeah, this is heavy. Uh, yeah. dude, that's a lot, man. Like I'm trying to, I mean, obviously I don't have a similar experience, but I can, I'm trying to imagine what that what that's like and it just feels like the imagery now is just like you know you kind of out in like some tundra and it's like blizzarding and it's just you you know and then there's like these people like huddle around like a fire eating it all together and you're like i don't do that though yeah which yeah. is also why it sounds like it hits so hard when you had that that one positive experience where it's like it's not that you ex like you experience the exact opposite of your fears where the, if the fears are like people are going to see me for what I actually prefer and then they're going to reject me. This person saw you for your preferences, adopted them willy, and then also like played within those constraints. And that's like, in my mind, it's like coming, like finding you out there in the tundra and like building a little fire that like <laughs> just for you two, you know, that's a, and like having a, a meal that like you're both actually enjoying. Like it makes a lot of sense for why I think that hit so hard for you or hit home for you so much and made such an impression because it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the exact opposite of the fear. Exactly. Like you said, man. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's weird reprocessing these memories, um, with someone else. I mean, like I've talked about each of these in, in isolation, but never like in one big contiguous block like this. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of what I mean when, when I say it's it's like hard to fully convey the gravity of some of these things without without like you know a half hour hour long conversation about it, like like I think that it also pay, played like a pretty significant role in bonding for like the longest relationship I've had as well. Like my my ex, we were together for like five and a half years. She was vegan, and I think actually for the purpose of this discussion, crucially, she was um, she was Chinese. So like the um i think that combination it was like it felt very affirming to me because it was a way of feeling connected both to the heritage and to this facet of myself uh like it, it felt like the vegetarianism at the time it was more reasonably vegetarian not just broadly picky that the vegetarianism was not a barrier to accessing parts of that culture or feeling a sense of belonging when in so many other facets, I can remember it very explicitly being this barrier to connection, this barrier to community, to this feeling of belonging. Uh, and I, I think that we ended up together in part because when, before we started dating, when she switched to being, I think she switched to being pescatarian first and then vegan, she mentioned to one of my friends and then my friend brought me up. So like it was, it was a weird opposite way of it being an important channel to connection rather than a barrier to it. And it definitely was like a, a very clear point of connection at many points in our relationship where we would both have these experiences of 
people like talking shit about vegans or vegetarians. And we were on the same side of that assault. Okay, assault's like a, a bit of an extreme word there, but the same the same side of that battle. Um, so it, it's it's weird in that it has both been this huge barrier to connection, but in these in a couple of really rare situations, it ended up actually being a point of bonding. Like I actually have several friends I think that I ended up feeling much more connected to much more rapidly when I discovered that they were also vegetarian. Uh, as like a very small side note, it, it's also why at the time anyway, it drove me crazy when people would say that they're vegetarian and then they would still be eating meat. Like, you know, they would say like, oh, I'm a vegetarian now. And then they would eat meat like once every couple of days. And it, it just like was so frustrating to me because they did not at all have the same struggle as I did, but they were using this label. And at the time I was bothered by it because my perspective was that, that like they were vegetarian. They claim they're using this word vegetarian, but they're still eating meat, which was, I thought, part of the reason why Whenever I said I'm vegetarian, then people like would always ask all these clarifying questions like, oh, but like, do we chicken? Do we fish? Like, no, I'm vegetarian. Uh, it's also weird for me now when I say, when I hear myself saying that, it doesn't feel true anymore, which is also really weird. Uh, mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like, I want to talk a little bit about the, the process of getting out of this. Uh, Before we jump into yeah. that. I just also want to say that I think you're, I think it's worth reaffirming the fears a little bit. I think like just thinking back to even like, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like I think that need for social acceptance is like, it's pretty, it's pretty foundational to the human experience. And so I just want to also affirm that like, this is a thing that you've been struggling for, like struggling with for like, like at least one, two decades. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even still a little bit now. So I'm just imagining that that's been really tough. Yeah. Um, like, and I mean, food is such a also integral part. Both of these things, social acceptance and food is such an integral part of the human experience. And it's in a way that like, you know, we eat with people, eat out like on a pretty regular basis. So I'm like also imagining that you encounter this on a very frequent basis. It's just in general, right? Like, it's kind of like every time you sit down and go out with friends, it's supposed to be like a like a fun time to go eat. And it's like every time for you, it's like trauma again. <laughs> Hello, it's back. So, yeah, it makes, it makes, makes me excited to dig into this next part of the conversation about the journey. Yeah. But, you know, before we dig in, I think that's it's worth giving some space that this is some, some tough stuff. Um, and then I actually also want to double underline that I think that fear of, oh, people will think I'm underdeveloped and not want to engage with me anymore is like a very real thing in a way there's like a lot of like good i guess like well not good but there's a lot of like psychological literature like well within psychology i've listened to a bunch of talks where they talk about the importance of like emotionally developing at a at a pace that is appropriate for your age because literally like you're saying like as an eight-year-old it's kind of fine if you're a little picky but like by the time you're 17, like most people are really beyond that. And there is this, there is kind of valid reasoning behind people not wanting to associate with other people that they view are like, like not emotionally on the same way. So I think that that's also a valid fear. Um, and you didn't explicitly say this, but it sounds like the way that you rationalize this now after you had that moment of realization is that this is a thing that you do view as underdeveloped and is a thing that you want to 
actively improve and work on. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it, it does. I do feel more relaxed having shared much of this and and having you recognize the ways in which like, you know, those those fear are real and it is fears of these foundational things of social acceptance being challenged. So, yeah, I feel that. I hear that and I feel that. <laughs> nice. That's good. That's the good stuff. Yeah. So I think that the way that, I think there was really two major phases of getting out of this. Um, yeah. And I think they all have to do with, in some ways, addressing this problem of shame and, and finding ways of working with or working around the, this problem of fear of judgment. So th this is a bit of a strange way of getting out of this, but uh, I think one of the biggest inflection points was in 2011 um, when I was an intern at Facebook. At the time, the company was still called Facebook. And the reason that this was an inflection point is I had access to a pretty broad cafeteria where I could take a tiny, tiny bit of everything and just try a little bit. And just trying a little bit of all these different things felt like it took a lot of this, this fear cycle away. I still didn't talk about this at all with almost anyone. But by taking a really small amount, it meant that I could try a little bit. If I didn't like it, I would just, put a, I would just leave it on my plate. And because it wasn't like a mound of the stuff, I didn't feel the same kind of social awkwardness that is caused by if I take a giant plate of something, eat two bites, and then leave the rest. So I think that was when I started to feel less afraid of experimenting. And I've noticed this pattern in many different facets of my life when there's something that I feel shame about and I'm scared of, that finding some way to reduce that fear of judgment uh, has been really effective. And the way I've done that in the past, and I'm changing this now, but the way I've done this in the past was I would try to find it a way of experimenting that no one else would notice. So this cropped up for this, this cropped up for uh, when I was trying to get more comfortable riding a bike. I just like went on longer bike rides completely on my own. So I didn't have to think about like managing anyone else's expectations or watch or having them watch me like repeatedly fall off the bike. And then similarly, this was the same thing I applied for, for driving where one year I just decided I was going to drive from San Francisco all the way to, to Tucson or to Arizona um, by myself. Uh, so that was one pretty important unlock where I had this environment where I, I could experiment at lower cost. At the time, I was still vegetarian. The vegetarianism stuff stayed until much, much later. But that was one pretty clear inflection point. Uh, the next inflection point, I think, probably was when I started to date the, my ex. I mean, um, because she was vegan. So she was vegan, but she's also a foodie. So she was always really excited about trying different foods. And because at that point, exploring more things became more tenable to me. And because I had this more accepting environment to do it in, it became this point of bonding from us occasionally to find new good vegetarian food in different places, or I guess more specifically good vegan food. So by having this like communal thing and place to explore this, it also created that kind of environment of psychological safety. And I, I really think that that is the thing that I have come to appreciate is so important is like having that sense of psychological safety and experimentation so that the worst case scenario is just not that uncomfortable. There still would be all the time things I would, I would try that I wouldn't like, but it wouldn't have the same emotional impact on me anymore. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the sense of dread of, when I look at a piece of food, and I'd be like, oh God, if I don't like this, this is going to be extremely socially uncomfortable. Um, and that still would crop up occasionally. Like the clearest examples I have are when eating 
with her family. Like the, they would offer me, they would be good at offering me vegetarian things. Um, in part because she, she was vegetarian or vegan. Uh, but occasionally it'd be like this, you know, a specific kind of mushroom that I really don't like. And I've tried so hard to like, and I just cannot get myself to like it. And I would still feel the same kind of reaction of like, oh man, like this is going to be really uncomfortable if I don't like this. Because I already feel like I'm, I am asking for so much accommodation by saying that I'm vegetarian that stacking anything else on top of that just feels like a huge social faux pas. So that was, yeah. But I, I still do think that having that environment with that girlfriend at the time was really important in, in giving me the psychological safety I needed to explore this. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop there for... Uh, for thoughts, and then there's like two-ish more clear milestones where things are, I guess three, where things shifted more. Yeah, I'm hearing that the first one you mentioned was finding this space within Facebook cafeteria where you could minimize essentially the ri all the risks that you saw, all the risks of social judgment and people noticing you had a, a safe space. That's kind of the, the theme I'm hearing here across at least these first two milestones where one, you could kind of dip your toes in and like, you know, take like one, I don't know, chickpea or whatever, as opposed to yeah. ordering a whole plate of chickpeas. <laughs> exactly. You just eat the one chickpea um, across a wide range of, of foods. And that was like your, that was the first thing. And then like you kind of put in the rest of the foot into the pool um, where after dating this ex, you had this someone that was kind of leading the charge in terms of exploration. And you, because you had already wet your toes a little bit, you're like, okay, I'm ready to, you felt you had gained enough confidence in that first safe environment to like move into this next safe environment that you guys were able to create together. And then slowly, slowly. Yeah. I'm appreciating just from your share, the importance of creating those environments of psychological safety and also giving someone the time and the space to like explore at their own pace yeah yeah i really do think that those environments are so important um yeah and you know I, I have this really great appreciation for people that are intentional about creating those uh a lot of teachers kind of do this coaches in different capacities do this mm -hmm. um i think parents will do this in some capacities as well and you know i have these very direct experiences of why it's so important because i've experienced both sides of it i've experienced how long you can get stuck without it and how quickly you can move in the direction you want to when you have it. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Um, the next inflection point was probably the weirdest one. So the next inflection point was actually at a meditation retreat. So I was at this meditation retreat out in Tucson. This is one of those nine-day silent meditation retreats. Yes, I, you know, I went full Bay Area. This is a thing. So at some point during the retreat, the guidance was to think about some behavior in your life that you wanted to change and really visualize the action of going through doing that behavior in the way that you wanted to. And this was like a, I think this was the second half of a 90 minute meditation set. So the, the first half was just silent. And then the second 45 minutes was this guidance. So the thing that I chose, the thing that came most naturally to me in that moment was I want to be a less picky eater. Um, so I just went through this visualization of being presented foods that I know I did not like. And then I would immediately feel the same reaction come up for me that I've had so many different times. This, this like constriction of the chest, tightening of the stomach, the 
spin up of thoughts of all the potential judgment. And then I would just observe those, but then try to stay true to my intention of still eating the food and really, really trying to observe the actual experience of eating the food separated from all of this like complex social baggage I'd picked up. So going out of that meditation, I would go into, I went into lunch and at this retreat every day, there's effectively buffet lunch. Uh, but it's, you know, you sit in silence. You might be sitting at a table with other people, but there's no communication. I distinctly remember picking up this cherry tomato, which I did not like at the time, and just doing this exercise of really trying to directly observe it, trying to separate it from all of the complicated things happening internally for me. The most basic of which is the verbal thought of I don't like cherry tomatoes. It's just this belief I have that I don't like these. And then trying to convince myself, okay, you're going to put this in your mouth. You're going to bite down on this and see what the actual experience of the cherry tomato is rather than latching onto this idea of, I don't like this. And I did that. I remember it being this like really, really rich experience uh, of like all these different textural changes, the really bright um, tart notes to it. And it wasn't like, oh my God, I love cherry tomatoes. I didn't leave with that expression or that impression, but I did leave with, you know what? This is fine. Like this, this isn't, this doesn't need to be a complicated thing. I, you know, I, I ate the cherry tomato and it's fine, which like, it's, it's, a, it's like a silly statement, but it's a very different perspective than the way that I was approaching eating food for a lot of the time. And I think for the, in the subsequent couple months, I was really good about engaging with food in this way where I would, whenever I would notice having this kind of reaction, I would really try to observe, okay, there's a bunch of thoughts coming up. There's like physical sensation coming up for me. That is all part of me, not part of the food. How do I experience the food directly instead? Mm. And just going through that experience over and over and over and over again. Um, and that really helped. Like the, there's still, there still are some things that I have a hard time with, but, but now I am more convinced that it is actually the flavor I don't like. Mm. So rather than some complicated story I'm telling myself, and that's important because the things where the, the flavor I don't like, I'm willing to retry them every couple months now. And it's not like a whole exhausting mental process. Like I used to have a thing where if I would eat something that I didn't like in particular meat, which I'll get to, then I would actually feel my hunger disappear because it was so, it was, I guess it was being dominated by like some kind of fight or flight response where I had like some almost like adrenaline response where my body's like, this food is no longer important. There's bigger problems now. Uh, so taking that mindful eating approach ended up being really helpful because it helped me disentangle the objective experience from the subjective complications inside of me. That's, yeah, that's super interesting. I'm curious when you say these these subjective things that you were telling yourself, what do they sound like in your head? Or what did they used to sound like in your head? I think some of it was as simple as, I don't like this. Some of it was, if I eat this and don't like it, this is reaffirmation that I'm stuck in this childlike state of pickiness. It wasn't like that complicatedly verbal, but I think that if I try to give words to the feeling of what was going on in me, that's what it was. Yeah, that last one hits for sure. Yeah. This idea of, yeah, it's like 
very viscerally testing and as an by extension of that, like facing your fears. And there's this meta fear of, oh, what if it goes poorly? What does that what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. Does it mean that I'm regressing? Does it mean that like I'm, you know, having or is regressing? And then there's also I have not made progress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The yes, the fear of not making progress or regression is very real. And it's it's really weird that the thing that held me back from making progress was this fear of 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 not making progress. Or like getting signal or signs that you were not making progress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. It actually it, I mean, I definitely relate to this idea of like being in situations where you want you desperately want to make progress. And we've talked about why it's you know, it's, it's tied to a lot of fundamental needs. So we definitely want to be making progress. I'm just, when you, yeah, I'm just hearing that you really want to make progress. And so the idea of encountering reality, a reality where it shows you otherwise, is pretty terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is terrifying. And it's just really unfortunate that fear of confronting evidence was the thing that's prevented the progress. It's like such a gnarly trap. Yeah, but there's also something that like feels so human. There's something so human about that. Just, yeah, I mean, well, that's why it's, that's why seeking the capital T truth is so, is so hard. I think they're just, yeah, I, it's gnarly, but I also want to affirm that I think that's super valid and like such a human, such a part of the human experience. Yeah, it's like, that's why it's, you know, the ugly truth. Uh, yeah. That people talk about so much. It's scary to look at the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It is it is scary to look at the truth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that I think that was the that was the third and then there's a couple steps past that. So that that was kind of the I think that was roughly the end of the trail when it came to expanding my palate to the boundary of vegetarianism. It's obviously still some things I don't like, but at that point it was I could reasonably pass it as a vegetarian without feeling like, like that was this weird facade of me hiding being a picky eater. But then getting past that was a really weird game because if you spend like 15 years of your life telling a story about who you are, in my case, being a vegetarian, and being asked why you're vegetarian and not wanting to tell the full complicated truth, you come up with rationalizations that start to sound importantly true to you. So for me, the rationalization that I eventually settled on that I honestly still feel quite strongly is I think it's really weird that a lot of people, now myself included, are comfortable eating meat when they're not comfortable killing animals. That it's really strange to me that there are so many people that I ask them, what do you want to eat? And they say, I want to eat some chicken. And I'm like, cool, here's a chicken, here's a knife, cut its head off. They'd be like, oh, hell no. I'm going to pass on the chicken now. And like, I think it's important here to separate a desire not to get messy from an actual like emotional complexity in this. So for instance, you know, if you told me like I have to go like swim through the sewer if I want a meal, then I'd be like, I'm just going to be hungry. And that's not a moral issue for me. It's not that like, I think it's wrong to swim through the sewer. I just don't want to do that. Whereas I think that a lot of people are on like an emotional and in some case ethical level, uncomfortable with the means required to 
produce this variety of food that they eat all the time. And that is just bizarre to me. But it's bizarre to me in a way now that like I have this cognitive dissonance myself and that, that now I eat meat, but give me a knife and, and a live chicken and I, like that's a whole other level of emotional and mental challenge that sounds like it would be a little bit more than a 10% push for me. So, I mean, I, I am actually curious to hear how you think about this, like how you think about the act of killing animals and how that connects to meat consumption. Yeah, that's interesting. I have definitely actually killed things that I've eaten before. Oh, really? Yeah, I think fish is the most common one because mm -hmm. a lot of the times you go to the fish market and they the whole point is that you buy a live fish yeah. you, and you it's sometimes still flapping around. Actually, sometimes you go to Asian markets and they literally will give you the fish in a plastic bag with water. Oh, yeah. So that it stays alive until like the very moment where you are about to cook it. So i definitely been there for that. I don't think I've killed a chicken that's definitely yeah definitely not but i've definitely also bought like a like a whole chicken before yeah like wings still attached like head still yeah everything and then having to like gut it essentially take its head off and sorry if this imagery is disturbing for anybody but yeah like but although if this image is disturbing to you and you eat meat then like i am very curious <laughs> to see how you're squaring this in your head too yeah i think in my mind like there's part of the, there's kind of part of me the is like, wow, it is kind of unfortunate that like like an animal has to like give their life for, I guess, me to consume meat. But for me, like when I hear the what you were describing before, it's like the part that is the dissonance is when people both have this idea of having a moral compass that tells them that they shouldn't be killing things to eat them. But when they can basically be afforded the ability to turn a blind eye, then they're down. Yeah. I don't think that... I have that. I think, I guess, my semblance of this is roughly that we've been doing it for millennia and that's kind of just how the world works. Um, yeah, I don't really have any trepidations about that specific bit in the sense of like, I don't know, very like like animal kingdom type stuff where yeah. you eat things and that's just how it kind of works. Um yeah, I don't have any like strong like. So, so here's my theory, but yeah. that's that's kind of how I feel, think about it. I mean, I, I I do in kind of a strange way do have more respect for people that are more aligned in this, where like the they don't feel this cognitive dissonance. Um, as we're talking about this, you know, animal kingdom stuff, a lot of stuff comes up for me that around the very different nature of animal consumption now. But I explicitly don't want to go down that route because I don't want to deal derail this whole discussion into something about factory farming. Yeah, that's um, fair. You know, interesting conversation, but not the one I'm trying to have right now. Uh, so anyway, the, I, I got stuck in that rationalization for a really long time. And this is also a little bit weird to admit, but I, I, I really think that the thing that shifted for me was at the end of, at the end of my last long relationship with, um, with this ex that was vegan, I started to like process the fact that I have, a, I have a lot of requirements, not requirements, a lot of things that I'm looking for in a partner. And expecting them to be vegetarian on top of everything else that's important to me just seem kind of preposterous. And if you couple that with, I don't know if, if people who are not vegetarian or vegan really appreciate this, but it's a really common thing in people's dating profiles to say, you should not date me if 
you're vegan or vegetarian. It's really common. And I think generally if someone has that, there's other reasons why that's probably not a good match. If that's one of your top three things that you're trying to advertise, then, you know, there's probably some other incompatibilities there. But it's really hard for it to not grate on you. And I, I think like in the same, in a much minor form of, of when people put things in profiles like just explicitly racist things, like like they explicitly write uh, like no Asians or like no black people or like no fat people. Like obviously anyone that would say that is not the kind of person that you would want to date if that's one of the things they're explicitly advertising. But it still sucks to see. And it still affects it definitely still affects like my psyche and I'm sure it affects the psyches of people as well that, that are reading those messages that explicitly disqualify them on the basis of this trait. So that was maybe one of the triggers that pushed me further down this. And the other trigger was that I started to recognize that I really did want on a more personal level to be able to engage with different cultures when I travel and especially the cultures that I have cultural heritage connections to. But because, you know, I had this cognitive dissonance and I still had this complicated emotional relationship, when it came to eating meat, it was there was one more layer to this, which was because I did not have this desensitization up until recently, when I would sit down to eat some kind of meat, the the image of that animal dying, of that animal being killed was like actually associated with the act of eating the meat in a way that like I at the time was just not possible to decouple, which obviously did not happen when I was eating like, you know, carrots, like I was not picturing screaming carrots. It's just not a thing. So I had to separately kind of train that. And some of this was the similar kind of mindfulness approach of, okay, like there's all these complicated messages coming up in my head, but focus on the actual experience of this so I can see, do I actually enjoy the, like, the gastronomical experience of this food? But I think the other really big unlock, which, which you were actually explicitly helpful in, was telling a few friends, hey, I am trying to become more comfortable with this. When we eat out, can I just try a little bit of something from you? And this was a similar kind of version of the thing from Facebook, except now I was being explicit about it. Now I was owning up to the fact that I was trying to change and trying to really get my friends to help me along this way. Um, and I similarly have like really clear memories of a couple of a couple of these instances. Like I remember the specific foods I ate with specific people along this journey. Like I remember trying... I specifically remember trying a small bit of, of chicken from you when we got Thai food before dance class. I specifically remember trying a bit of oysters with a, with a friend in Toronto. I specifically remember eating uh, the crab meat from a crab fried rice at a specific place. And like my memory for food stuff in general is not very good. But because these were emotionally important moments, they are really clear in my mind. So this is another kind of way of me learning how to create the environments of psychological safety that I needed by explicitly talking about what I was trying to do and then asking for help. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel immense gratitude to, to all the friends that helped me along this way, um, including you, obviously, Kevin, uh, because it, it helped me not feel as alone in that endeavor. And I felt like I could do that in community and, and I could do that without the same sense of judgment. Um, and then I, th I think the, I think that's really the, the last really big inflection point. And then going to Hong Kong just gave me ample opportunity to try a bunch of non-vegetarian food that I really liked to the point where I switched from trying a bit of meat maybe every week or two with friends to just like eating meat nearly every day while I was in Hong Kong, which is a, which was a really strange change for me. But, uh, 
now when I say that, like, I'm not, I went from this weird phase of being like, I'm vegetarian, I'm strictly vegetarian, to I'm like mostly vegetarian. And that's like a really weird thing to explain that I felt awkward about. So now I just say I'm not vegetarian. And now I'm, just, I'm not vegetarian. There's still some things I don't like. I think that actually some of the, some of the things we don't like are actually similar now. Like, like raw fish, I'm still not a huge fan of. Uh, I think that like shrimp, you're also not like a huge fan of the flavor of. Yeah, I'll eat it, but I don't really love it. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like I'm, I'm approaching now what like I view as like a reasonable level of pickiness. And started to recognize that actually a lot of people have preferences that, that like they're just okay with. Like one of our friends really doesn't like mushrooms. Like people in my family just like don't like certain other foods. Like my mom really doesn't like tofu. Um, so it's, it's like okay for people to have preferences. It's just, you know, there's, there's limits on that until it starts to feel bad. Yeah, I think what's really worth celebrating is this, is the honestly the emotional arc. We went from feeling the opposite of safe, of feeling like every meal was an opportunity to be othered and excluded and attacked, basically. Yeah. And well, you're not attacked, but just, yeah, separated from the pack and be like, you know, exposed to isolation and alienation and loneliness to this point of realizing I can find safe spaces to slowly experiment to somebody co-creating an environment for you that was a safe space for experimentation to realizing that this is something that you can ask for yeah. and like explicitly define the boundary and be like, hey, I'm working on this thing. Do you mind like helping out in this way and getting positive experiences around that? And now you're at this place where through that arc, you're pretty comfortable exploring, playing around with different foods now. And in a way, come kind of full circle where you realize that like not all, you don't need to like everything. Yeah. And it's okay to have actual preferences. Preferences themselves are not evil in and of themselves. Yeah. But there is a, a balance, I think. And from a meta perspective, I think that's really cool. One thing I've been exploring like in my own like readings and in therapy is this idea that a lot of a lot of these journeys towards getting comfortable with parts of yourself, like whether that's like, I don't know, self-esteem or self-worth, or in this case, like realizing that you have the ability to create with boundaries, like safe spaces, a lot of it originates. It's easy to say that you should just know these things and it, it and like because it is true and it's finalized, fully realized state, it comes internally. But it's interesting that there's a theme of the way that you discover it and in the early stages is actually through others and having good experiences through others. And in that social setting, you learn that it's socially acceptable, it's okay, and it's a thing. And then eventually you kind of, it's almost like training wheels where like getting that affirmation or being shown that by other people is what originally clues you into the idea that this is a thing. And then eventually you get to this place where you just, are self-sustaining. You're like, oh, this is like fine. And I can actually create that environment for myself. I don't need to luck into it. I don't need other people to make it for me. Mm -hmm. I can make it for myself. Mm -hmm. And then you get to this point of actual independence, self-confidence. And yeah. 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 I, I do think that looking into it is a really important thing. Like the recognizing those experiences of feeling included, including this this food preference thing was really important in recognizing 
how important this was to me. And it was from those experiences that it became evident to me that having the support of people was going to be helpful. But then in a more mature form, I learned how to ask for that rather than just hoping that it would it would manifest on yeah. its own. Hoping that like someone would come in and almost a parental role and say like, hey man, like, do you want help with this? Which would have been absurd if anyone had done that because like, I, you know, in many ways I was intentionally hiding this. So I also think that it, by a- explicitly asking for it, that is part of the way that I was able to embody a sense of adulthood in this. And that th- this is where it felt like I had both this adult version and child version. And this is like a way of the adult version taking care of the child version. Because it's the adult version asking for help in the specific way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the child version that is still struggling with the thing. So having both embodied ended up being really helpful. Um, the other thing that comes to mind for that kind of divide, weirdly, I think that in order for being vegetarian to be sustainable for me on a longer time scale, I needed to do this because for a long time, I had the sense of shame associated with vegetarianism. And I think that if I want to be vegetarian for reasons that I actually believe are about ethics, I need to decouple the ethical justification for it from this child-rooted fear. And now that like I am out of that, I might go do that. I'm honestly not sure if I am going to go back to being vegetarian or not. That's the thing that I'm still thinking through. But I'm now confident that if I decide to return to that, it's from a place of, of like mature ethical choice rather than it being about hiding. And I think that's really important to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Just to be able to know in your heart of hearts that if you do this, you've proven to yourself that there's no way that you're just using it as a crutch. Exactly, exactly. You're doing it for like the actual reasons. Yeah, you know, we, we talked about this in episodes... Uh, in the episode about arrogance where I think I became arrogant about my ethical choice to be vegetarian, but it was really acting as a shield for um, for what I viewed as insufficiency. So like I found, in the way that you phrased it, I found a way to be proud of my insufficiency, which is how it got stuck. Yeah. What a journey indeed. What an arc. Dude, that's, that's, some, that's awesome. Oh, okay. I think I'm feeling pretty cleared out now. Nice. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks for sitting through all of that with me and helping me disentangle the many threads of that. Um, and of course, for, you know, being a direct part of that journey as well. Yeah, happy to have been. I don't, I definitely didn't appreciate the gravity of what I was doing in that moment yeah. when we were at that Thai restaurant. Yeah. You're like, can I try some chicken? I'm like, sure, man, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as like a, Another interesting kind of silly marker of this. Uh, when the first couple times we recorded, we were at your place and we would order from this restaurant called called Guy, which means Cantonese and chicken. Sorry, means chicken and Cantonese. Uh, and they have a tofu option. And the last couple times before I went to Hong Kong, I ordered the tofu option, and then this time I ordered the chicken option. And that's just part of another weird facet of this journey. Yeah, I'm just really appreciating in this moment how full the arc is like we just went through the whole like i don't want to say hero's journey but like you know you kind of discovered this thing that you're like whoa at 17 you're like whoa this is not good i need to fix this yeah and then you know it takes time and takes you know some luck and takes some good experiences and for friends to show up to show you the light in a way 
but yeah, you stepped into it, man. One step at a time, like, and now look at you go. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, man. Oh, oh, I'm feeling like warm and like honestly proud of myself for. Dude, I'm proud of you too. Working through such a long ass journey. Yeah, it sounds gnarly and it sounds tenuous. Very, yeah. I feel like, again, big gravity ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge stuff. So, oh. yeah, it's true. I'm glad you like worked through it. It sounds, especially in the beginning, it sounded like really, really, really heavy. Yeah, it was definitely pretty heavy. I feel lighter now. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, how are you feeling now? I think I actually feel more energy on both sides. I feel Whoa. more awake. I'm like a, I don't know, like a six or a seven weakness. And emotionally, energy level, I'm at like a, like an eight. And then how would I describe this state? I think proud is um, the predominant thing. Proud and grateful. I think those are the two predominant emotions coming up for me right now. Beautiful, man. Yeah. How are you feeling? Yeah, similar. Um, um, I think I'm eights on both, physical and emotional. So sounds like we had a, a connecting conversation. Yeah. I think emotions for me, it's a lot of joy. I think, yeah, from being able to walk through this journey through you, through you, with you. Yeah. Over the last hour or so. And yeah, also just how far you've come. And then finally, also the fact that you can be proud of yourself. Yeah, man. Yeah, overall, like five out of five. Like happy for you, man. It's just awesome. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to call it there. All right. Well, thank you also at home or wherever you are for going on this journey with us. I guess, yeah, we'll call it there. And we'll see y'all in two weeks. See ya. Adios. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us by leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it because it helps us grow and lets others find the show. But we're not podcasting. Kevin also makes YouTube videos. And Jamie has a blog. You can find links to these in the episode description. The intro music you heard in this episode was made by Harry Dye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.